We are, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, continuing our series through the book of, of Daniel. Tom, having taken a, a couple of messages both to introduce the book as a whole and subsequently to go through chapter one uh, last week. Therefore, we had chapter two and this week, chapter three. Um, being a, a fairly familiar passage to a lot of us, whereby Daniel's companions Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace which the Lord subsequently delivers them from. I've entitled the message, uh, for what it's worth, Obedience to a Sovereign Good God. Obedience to a Sovereign Good God. And uh, though Tom has just read the chapter for us to give a, a very high-level, broad, non-specific summary, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do not bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, or perhaps it's even an image of Nebuchadnezzar, we're not told specifically, but they don't bow to that. They're thrown into the fiery furnace and they are, are subsequently delivered from it, as I mentioned. And there are, are numerous points that are seen and can be drawn out of the text, uh, but perhaps the, the main focus of the text and the, the hinge point of which we ought to focus our attention is on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's obedience to the Lord, their refusal to disobey him, even though to obey him, and hence not bow down to the image, results uh, for them in an unknown outcome. They have to entrust themselves to the Lord's good character, to his sovereignty, in making the decision to obey him. Essentially, they don't know if they'll be burned from being thrown into the fiery furnace or if they will survive. Their obedience is built on a foundation of knowing God is good, is sovereign, and in seeking to glorify him and not another. And hence, obedience regardless of the absence of a known outcome. And this is uh, similar, perhaps you'll note, to, to Daniel in chapter 2 that we went through last week, whereby he asks for an appointment with Nebuchadnezzar prior to having had the dream revealed to him and the subsequent interpretation thereof. He, he essentially says when Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, comes in for, to murder him, uh, he essentially says, wait, 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 give me an appointment with King Nebuchadnezzar and we'll go from there. He doesn't really know if the Lord at that time will reveal the dream to him or otherwise, but he entrusts himself to the Lord regardless of the fact that to do so produces an outcome which is not known for him, at least at that time. So as, as per what I did last week, uh, because the text has already been read for us uh, and because the, the chapter is reasonably long, I won't read through each section prior to to drawing out a few more points. I'll just give a, a bit of a summary and draw out the points thereof. And uh, if you want to read the text again uh, after you go home today or something, then great, do that. The first section that I have my sights on uh, is also R verses 1 to 7. And here Nebuchadnezzar sets up his golden image and at the dedication ceremony, it is commanded that all bow to the image or be burned in the fiery furnace. And one of the things that, 
I, I love about preparing messages or studying the Lord's Word more deeply as opposed to, to just reading through it. Let me be very clear, reading through the Lord's Word is good, uh, but one of the things I, I love about preparing messages is because it, it causes you to slow down and study in a bit more depth. And as a result, one of the things I noted here is that Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. Now, if, again, if you'll hearken back to uh, the second chapter, just before this one, you'll remember that the, the image or the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream, which Daniel subsequently sees also and interprets the meaning thereof, the head of that image was of gold. And Daniel said that that head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar, or represented his kingdom. Now, clearly, uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't really heed the message of that dream. Instead of, of realizing that, that his kingdom and the kingdoms of silver and gold, and sorry, of silver and bronze and, and iron and iron and clay that came thereafter, were smashed by the kingdom of the stone instead of heeding that message. Rather, he makes an entire statue of gold and this representing uh, him or, or to worship it. Clearly, he didn't heed the message of that dream. But the, the head was of gold and subsequently he makes this entire image of gold. Turn with me, if you will, to, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. As the text says, uh, this, this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up is, is 60 cubits in height and 6 cubits in breadth. In metric terms for us, that's 27 metres tall and 2.7 metres wide. Now, I, I wanted to give us some sort of a, um, a physical uh, thing in our minds so that we could kind of grasp just how how tall this is, 2.7 metres wide is perhaps a little more familiar to us, uh, but 27 metres tall, what does that look like? Uh, and so I, I took it upon myself to, to measure the tower in Homeworld this week. I didn't really, I just Googled it. But that tower is about 50 metres tall. And so if you imagine about half of that being around about 27 metres tall, that's how tall this statue was. And so even though it's half of the Homeworld Tower, nonetheless, that's still a pretty big statue of gold that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. And as I sort of alluded to, it's not clear if this statue is of Nebuchadnezzar or if it's just a statue that he set up. But nonetheless, Nebuchadnezzar is demanding idolatrous acts of his subjects. He's saying that you must bow down and worship this idol that I've set up. You must uh, essentially worship this God or my gods. Now at risk of stating the obvious and hence I've asked you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, it would be a clear violation of the first and second commandments for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to bow down to this image. So let's read uh, as I turn there myself, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we'll just go from verses 7 to 10. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I remember uh, when I first found out, and, and it was enlightening to me, uh, that when, when the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, what it's not saying is that uh, as long as you put Yahweh first, you're then free to have Vishnu and Allah and Buddha and whatever else under that, or any other god you want to poke a stick at. Rather, what it's saying is, is you shall not have any other gods in my presence before me. In the same way as, as I, as a preacher, stand before a congregation, you are before me. So, in a similar way, God is everywhere, and so everything is essentially before him. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not have any other gods. But God says, no gods before me, or no gods in my presence, and don't make any images and don't bow down to them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, in effect, or explicitly, here is your God, or a God, bow down and worship it. So if you're looking for an example of where civil disobedience to governmental authorities is appropriate in God-honoring, uh, this is perhaps an appropriate place to look. We must obey God rather than men, say Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5. So moving on from that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have found themselves in an elevated role. Uh, chapter 2, verse 49 notes, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And just to take a, a brief tangent, I don't have the answer as to why this is, I just think it's interesting, but you'll notice that throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is generally referred to as Daniel, his Hebrew name, whereas his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, in their Hebrew names, are generally referred to as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you see it even in that verse, chapter 249, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So even in the general narration of the chapter, uh, his companions are referred to by their Babylonian names as opposed to their Hebrew names. Again, I don't have the answer to that as to why that is, but I just think it's interesting. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, have found themselves in an, an elevated role in the province of Babylon. And so surely at this point, for a variety of reasons, there is the temptation to compromise. Perhaps they, they wouldn't like to lose their position. They're in this elevated role. They don't want to lose that position by, by doing something which is explicitly against the king's order. They, quite reasonably, probably don't want to be burned in the fiery furnace. And even just from a, a mental and an emotional point of view, it's difficult to go against the crowd in such a marked fashion. I mean, these are, are three gentlemen in amongst a crowd of 
who knows how many, but can you imagine if you are one of the only ones, one of only three people that are standing up when everybody else is bowing down to this image, that, that's a difficult thing. And perhaps you found yourself in a, a similar situation whereby you know that one way is to disobey the Lord, one way is to obey the Lord, but everybody else is doing the disobey thing and it's hard from a, a mental and an emotional point of view to pull yourself away from that and to hold fast to the Lord, even though you might know that that's the right thing to do. Everyone else is being a sheep. Everyone else is doing the thing which Nebuchadnezzar says to do and, and sheeping along with that, if you will, rather than doing what is right and refusing to engage in that idolatrous worship. Indeed, verse 7 recounts for us, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the point here for us, Christians are Yahweh's sheep, not the world's sheep. Christians are to follow the Lord and not the world. So sequentially, next, uh, verses 8 to 15. And to summarize the section, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, don't bow down to the image. And the text says, certain Chaldeans, in verse 8, maliciously tell Nebuchadnezzar the same. Nebuchadnezzar gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego another chance to bow down to this image. And Nebuchadnezzar reinforces that if they don't bow, they'll be cast into the furnace. And he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? To give a bit more detail, verse 12 says, there are certain Jews addressing Nebuchadnezzar, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These maliciously accusing Chaldeans specifically say that it's Nebuchadnezzar who has appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the province of Babylon. And though the text doesn't address it specifically, I think there's a good degree with which we can have confer or infer perhaps that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they are, are exiles who have reached this high place in Babylon which they've been exiled to. And could it be that these maliciously accusing Chaldeans see that these, these gentlemen are, are exiles and yet they've been elevated to this high position and they're jealous of them. Therefore they come before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and they sort of, they twist his arm. They, they may well know, as indeed we can see from the text, that he's a, a fairly egotistical and narcissistic kind of gentleman. And so they come to him in their jealousy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, you, you Nebuchadnezzar, you appointed these gentlemen over the province of Babylon. And now look how they are disobeying you. Look how they are not bowing down to this statue that you have made. Look how they are not not obeying you, they're not bowing down to your gods. 
And you'll see this episode comes after chapter 247, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Truly, your God is God of God, speaking to Daniel, and Lord of kings, and a reveal of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so to answer Nebuchadnezzar's own question in chapter 315, who is the God? Perhaps the very same as you have proclaimed so highly and who was able to reveal supernatural truths that could not otherwise have been known to Daniel. Perhaps this same God has the power to save from the fiery furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar's arm has been twisted and he is thinking as his ever irrational and narcissistic self. The point for us that we can see from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's actions is to worship God alone and not any idol. To flesh that out a little bit more, may God give us such a steadfast devotion to him to be able to withstand the pressures of the world to bow down to its idols. And at least in the West, to a large extent, there are less of physical, say, statues and idols that people would make and subsequently bow down to and worship. I'm sure there are some if we look hard enough. But there are, certainly, though there are less physical gods and idols, There are many non-material systems and attitudes that are just as idolatrous as this golden statue which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. For example, the modern notion that, that subjective feelings are as important or even are as objective as, as solid facts, as objective facts, is such an idol even that feelings are facts. And this kind of notion results not just in obvious things like transgenderism, uh, but in a more general and far-reaching societal attitude whereby any notion or any feeling, regardless of how outlandish it is, cannot be challenged. And if you do challenge such an idol of our society, refusing to bow down and worship it, you may find yourself in the proverbial fiery furnace. But as Christians, to combat this, as Christians, we worship the God who created all things. We worship the God who is the source of all things, who has authority over all things, who is the very source of truth. You'll remember perhaps uh, in the the documentary, which a lot of us watched uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, how to answer the fool with Seiden Brugenkate, that one of his detractors asked the question, what is true? Well, our son uh, Silas subsequently took to, to uh, spouting this at various times throughout the day. And so we, uh, we gave him a response being, truth is that which accords with reality. Reality is dictated by God, which he usually says is dictated by God. And God is the source of all truth. Jesus, the living word, said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so we, as those who worship Yahweh, as those who worship God, 
will not bow, ought not to bow down to the idols of relativism or subjectivism where the truth is not known and feelings are the rule of the day. Truth is good. This is not an idol we should bow down to, even if we're the only three, as it were, who are left standing when everybody else is bowing down around us. And so again, worship God alone, not any idol. Now verses 16 to 18, which we find ourselves at now, are arguably that hinge point in the text. Uh, and so I want to read them because it's only a short section and because I think they're quite important. I want to read them again to sort of refresh us on them. So starting from verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that we'll be thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego note they will not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods, nor worship the image. They say God is able to save them, but if he won't, from the furnace, they will still not bow down to the image or worship the gods. Arguably, this is the central moment of our text that we find ourselves in, the hinge point or the fork in the road whereby a direction is chosen for what comes after. And not just what comes after in, our, in the narrative of the story, in the ebb and flow of the text, in the drama and resolution thereof, but uh, really this is a, a history account of, in this case, three people's lives. So here is the moment they found themselves in, whereby to choose one way meant one fairly certain thing, to choose another way and obey God meant an unknown outcome, whereby they would have to entrust themselves and the outcome of their choice to the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have refused the opportunity to recant their position and bow down and worship the statue. So these verses show us the why of why they refuse to do such a thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or SMNA as they appear in my notes, because that's a lot of typing, obey God. Not having gods before him, not committing idolatry, but entrusting the outcome of their obedience, even if it comes at the cost of their life. And as we read through uh, narrative sections of scripture like that, history, that narrative uh, sort of story sections of scripture like this, it's easy to get taken up in the, in the good quality story of the text and miss uh, the real punch thereof. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, put yourselves in their shoes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are have a choice to make, which the choice itself is hard to make because of the reasons which I mentioned before. But the outcome may well mean that they are bound and thrown into a fiery furnace. And in the natural, human beings, when they contact fiery furnaces, do not come off on top. 
This is a, a real scenario that they found themselves in. Try and, and put yourselves in, that, in their shoes and try and feel, as it were, what they were feeling. And you have a, a greater appreciation then of, of how the Lord works through them, of the, the relationship, of the zealousness that they had for the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that God can save them from the furnace, but they do not know that God will, but they trust and obey God, refusing to sin against him. And I wonder if the, he will deliver us out of your hand, in verse 17, encompasses both possible outcomes. God will deliver us if we die, in that we will be with him in eternity, or God will deliver us out of your hand by, excuse me, by preserving our lives from the fiery furnace. But the point which we can draw out uh, from what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do is to obey God and trust the outcome to him, knowing he is good. Verses 19 to 25, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged and orders the furnace be heated seven times more. Just to be clear, he didn't have a temperature gauge up on the wall by which he wanted it heated seven times what it currently was. It just means a lot more to be heated seven times more than regularly heated. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrown in. The furnace is so hot that the men who throw them in are killed or who are sent to throw them in more accurately. And Nebuchadnezzar subsequently observes four men walking freely within the flames, and he notes the fourth is like a son of the gods in verse 25. So it's interesting Nebuchadnezzar's response here because of how it totally flips uh, in the latter part of the text. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say they will only serve God. They will not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods or worship the golden image that he has set up in verse 18. And Nebuchadnezzar is subsequently filled with fury and has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound and thrown into the fiery furnace. But mark that in your minds. But Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he sees that this fourth man, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, has the appearance of a son of the gods. Now generally, uh, this is considered to be a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, or a, a Christophany, as the theologians call it, which is kind of uh, cool on a, a nerdy theological level. I appreciate that. I get excited about these kind of things. Um, but as I looked at this text and as I was preparing this message, I looked at a commentary which I don't usually look at, and that's not because it's of poor quality. Um, it does, just by the by, uh, generally come as one of the, the free ones that you can get as a part of Bible software. Uh, but Matthew Henry, in his concise commentary on the whole Bible, says on these verses, Now was fulfilled in the letter that great promise of Isaiah 43.2, When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Leaving it to that God who preserved them in the fire to bring them out, they walked up and down in the midst, supported and encouraged by the presence of the Son of God, that Christophany. 
those who suffer for Christ have his presence in their sufferings, even in the fiery furnace and in the valley of the shadow of death. Nebuchadnezzar owns them for servants of the Most High God, a God able to deliver them out of his hand. It is our God only is the consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. Could we but see into the eternal world, we should behold the persecuted believer safe from the malice of his foes, while they are exposed to the wrath of God and tormented in unquenchable flames. Though it's not uh, the most sunshine and rainbows things to consider, uh, Nebuchadnezzar essentially thinks that he can uh, play God, as it were, and, and he can uh, judge these gentlemen in, in the fire for not doing as he wills. Matthew Henry here is saying that only God has the power to judge those, and he judges those uh, who do not have Christ's blood covering them in righteousness. He judges them in the eternal fires of hell. Whereas those who obey the Lord, those who have Christ's blood covering them and who are covered by his perfect righteousness, they know the Lord not only in the midst of the trial, in the fiery furnace, but in the eternity of the hereafter. And so in a, a nerdy theological way, it is good to be excited about this Christophany. Um, but by way of application, Matthew Henry does well. In a similar way to how Jesus was present with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, keeping them safe and comforted in the fiery furnace, so he is with us by his spirit in the fiery furnaces of life. Everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit is with you. If you know the Lord, everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is with you. And hence Luke recounts in his 12th chapter, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He says, be not anxious about food, drink, clothing, daily necessities, quoting Jesus, of course. Rather, set your affections and mind upon seeking God. God, by his Holy Spirit, is with you day by day by day in, in the everydayness of every day. So you, you set your sight, you set your affections upon him and all these other necessities will be given to you. He is with you in those uh, daily, uh, can we call them, minor fiery furnaces. And in further complement of this truth that Christ is with us in the fiery furnaces of life, uh, turn with me quickly, if you will, to, to Romans chapter 8. And though you're familiar with it, potentially, uh, it's, it's good for us to read this section. So Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How often do you contemplate, I was going to say compliment, how often do you contemplate that truth? That Jesus, the God of all, the second person of the Trinity, is interceding for you at the right hand of God. Who shall, pers- who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, which sound fairly fiery furnace to me, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah and Amen. So our point again to draw out from uh, from Daniel and complemented by these verses uh, in Luke and Romans, obey God. He is with you in the fiery furnaces of life. And so the last section of of the chapter in Daniel chapter 3, verses 26 to 30, Nebuchadnezzar orders Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to come out of the furnace and not even their hair is singed, nor do they smell of fire. Nebuchadnezzar decrees that, and isn't this the, the amazing flip which we see, having uh, in the other earlier parts of the chapter said, you know, who is the God who is going to save you from this fiery furnace? And having so despised Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for refusing to obey Nebuchadnezzar and rather obeying the Lord, look at this shift. Nebuchadnezzar decrees that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. (coughs) And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are promoted. Now, of course, uh, we would love it if Nebuchadnezzar at this point had of Uh, abandoned his plethora of other gods. Regrettably, it is not so. But the fact that he he notes that that no other god is able to rescue in this way and any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against this god shall be torn limb from limb, etc. This is quite a turnaround. You'll notice also that Nebuchadnezzar beckons these gentlemen, our heroes of the story, as servants of the Most High God. And notice also in the text that many of the same characters, the the satraps, the prefects, the counselors, etc., many of these same characters who were present uh, in the original part of the text who have seen that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They very well may know that they were subsequently thrown into the fiery furnace. 
They've seen that they survived the fiery furnace and to such an extent that not even the hair on their head was singed, nor did they even smell like smoke. Many of these same characters are now present to see the work of the God whom they should have been devoted to. The death of these fellows in the natural was a foregone conclusion. Even the mighty men of his, of Nebuchadnezzar's army, who were brought to, to throw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the furnace were killed because of the intensity of the flame. In the natural, it was a foregone conclusion that these gentlemen ought to have burned. But isn't it like the Lord to use a situation which seems most devastating to his cause to totally flip it and to use it to his glory? And we see that here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see it uh, even more poignantly with the cross of Christ. Here was the, the king of the Jews. Here was the Messiah. And he was hung on a tree, on a, on a cursed implement. It seemed the greatest defeat, and yet it was a great, great victory. He died. He was in the grave. He rose, he reigns victoriously. The Lord flips situations that seem most devastating to his cause and he uses them for his glory, such is the case here and elsewhere in scripture and perhaps even in your own existence. So the point, obey God. He is Lord of all and is able to turn the direst of situations and use it for his glory and for the good of his people. And as we come to a conclusion, the central theme, as I've noted, is to obey God and entrust ourselves to his good character and sovereignty, even in the midst of an unknown outcome. And if I could just add uh, one word to that, this is not the same. It is really entirely different to saying that if we drive down the highway at 100 kilometers an hour, and we take our hands off the wheel and we entrust the outcome to the Lord, these are not the same things. This is not a call to stupidity. But rather, where we find ourselves at a fork in the road and one way is to disobey God for a known and potentially pleasant outcome, the other way is to obey God and entrust the outcome to Him, regardless of the outcome being unknown to us, we do the latter. And we look forward to knowing him within the uncertainty. Now we can't know uh, explicitly, but I do wonder if Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego looked back on this fiery furnace experience whereby they had known uh, the intimate presence of the second person of the Trinity, at least by most folks' interpretation. I wonder if they looked back on that fiery furnace literally and metaphorically experience in rather than any kind of distress, but rather in great pleasure. I wonder if it's something that they, they loved to consider because it was the experience whereby they knew the most intimate presence of the Lord in their lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entrusted themselves to God and they knew the presence, strength, and comfort of Christ in the midst of a fiery furnace. They entrusted themselves to God and saw the Lord totally flip a scenario which in the natural had a very certain outcome. 
And lastly, regardless of whether trusting the Lord in the midst of a fiery furnace works out for us pleasantly or otherwise, what we can always know, and doesn't this give such great liberty, what we can always know is that in all things, God works all things out for our good, for his glory. And that in, as Romans recounts for us, all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have these sections of scripture which are not only uh, interesting, they're not only a, a good read, quote unquote, but there are so many good things that we can learn from them. God, help us to have the, the zealousness for you as is displayed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Help us to have that unwavering obedience to you, uh, regardless of whether obeying you uh, has a, a known outcome for us, has a pleasant outcome for us or otherwise. Lord, help us not to compromise. Help us not to uh, have a little bit of you and a little bit of the world, Lord, but just to be steadfastly devoted to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.